for dropping down talking to you like this. So, there's an outline in the book that you received as you came in. It'll give you some idea of where we're heading. It's a, a place you can look to, um, uh, to write your notes, that sort of thing. What Andrew didn't say much about was how I, uh, I came to know both he and Judy. Uh, they were both studying at Adelaide University when I was a staff worker, uh, working with the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students or the, uh, the partner group with IFES. And uh, I got to know them as students. Andrew, in fact, was president of the group when uh, I became involved as a staff worker. And Judy was the vice president. So there was sort of young love forming at the elite level of... Uh, the AFES group, it was, it was very nice to behold. And uh, over the years, uh, I've grown in enormous admiration and respect for them as a couple. And I think uh, uh, you are a very privileged uh, people to actually have them pastoring you. I'm sure you already appreciate that, but uh, they are a fine, fine couple. In fact, when Andrew was studying at Theological College, I would ring him up on a regular basis and say... Uh, I'm confident it is God's will for you to come back to Adelaide and work for Holy Trinity Church. And, um, and he would say, oh, we were thinking we should come back to Malaysia. I'd say, no, that isn't God's will for you. God's will for you is to go. So it is funny that uh, given he's, he's never listened to me on the issue of guidance before this, they should ask me to come and speak to you on this very matter uh, this weekend. Uh, I think this is dropping, isn't it? That's okay. Uh, so there you go. I think there's a, a lovely irony in that, uh, that truth. And I'm here talking to you on this topic. And let me say, it is a, a, a divisive sort of topic. I, I, I'm not speaking on it to divide you, but when you get two Christians in a room, you'll find when you come to the issue of how God leads, they'll disagree. Uh, not necessarily at a core level, but in terms of some of their thinking, uh, some of the, the practicalities of uh, when it comes to it. So I thought what I'd do to start, start is get you disagreeing with each other uh, before you disagree with me. All right? So that's the, what I thought I'd do. Here's a scenario, and it's a real one. I was with a group of pastors not long ago. And in this group of pastors, I raised this question of guidance, just to, just to suss them out, all from different backgrounds, different churches, and one man said, he gave a great example from his own life. He said, uh, I had a girl in my congregation. She'd just finished high school and was about to go to university. Incredibly bright, right? Aced all her exams and received four offers from four different universities around Australia in terms of course options and scholarships. And she came to me, uh, this, this pastor, went to this pastor and said, Pastor, I can't work out which of these offers is God's will for my life. Okay? Now, this pastor uh, said to her, what I want you to do is to go home and sleep on it. And when you wake up tomorrow morning, whichever university first comes to your head is the one that God wants you to go to. Okay? So that's what he told her, and off she went, and the first unit, and she went, and she studied at that university. Okay? What I want you to do is just talk to someone near you, and uh, uh, just swap ideas on whether you think that pastor gave good advice or not. Uh, so actually, I'm not asking you to disagree with yourselves, just disagree with the pastor, or uh, agree with him, and then in due course you can disagree with me. Right? So uh, good advice or not, I'll give you about uh, 45 seconds each, just to run that around. Okay? Give it a shot.
Okay, and that, you can keep talking over tea if you want to, but, but already I'm sure you it would have just flushed out a range of issues as you think about this whole matter of guidance. I mean, why is guidance an issue for us as Christian people? It's because we are decision-making automatons, okay? We, we just make hundreds and thousands of decisions every day. Most of them we don't think a lot about. You know, I, um, soon I woke up this morning, we're staying with the chairs, we came out and Judy said, you know, which cereal do you want or do you want toast, right? There were four cereals. We had a big choice to make, okay? Which of these cereals were we going to eat? Uh, not a big choice, but we still had to make a choice. Uh, tea or coffee uh, to follow. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of things that we're working out. Uh, when you came up here, you had to work out how you were going to get here, uh, uh, who you were travelling with, uh, uh, whose advice you should take on which directions to take and things like that. Uh, for us, the options were, yes, some got you lost, I can see that. Uh, for us, the option of where we should eat for lunch uh, caused considerable discussion. You know, it was uh, <laughs> driving around trying to find a restaurant that matched the picture. I mean, you know, <laughs> Uh, we, we could have been doing that for, I reckon we could, in fact, we could have spent the whole weekend doing that and still not found it, I think. <laughs> but, uh, but we ate very well at a, uh, by the providence of God, a great spot. Um, and many decisions we have to make. And there's a level of frustration, I think, for Christians often in decision making. Not on those trivial matters, but on significant matters. Um, we want to do the will of God if we're serious as Christian people. And sometimes there can be that frustration. Uh, We're so keen, why isn't God keener to let us know what he wants us to do about certain things? And see, part of our problem is um, we haven't got the capacity to know all the information for making a decision. Right? Uh, We're not uh, omniscient. We don't know everything. Uh, We're not omnipotent. We don't have all power. And therefore, when it comes to decision-making... Uh, For us, it's flawed before we start. However, God is omniscient. He is omnipotent. And therefore, why doesn't he just straighten it out for us? You know, uh, why doesn't he just, you know, who should I marry? Wouldn't it be much easier if God just said, Mary Perkins, you know, or Joe, whoever it is. You know, do you know what I mean? Just give us a name. Send it in the post if you want. I mean, but just why, why God can, he is that sort of incredibly powerful and able God. So why doesn't he do that? What is God's plan for our life? What I want to do in this session, and we'll come back to some of the practicalities uh, as we go on. You'll see from the outlines I want to tackle some of the big decisions that we make in life. What I want to do in this session, though, is to sketch out a big picture plan for how we go about making decisions uh, how we go about doing that in a godly sort of manner. Okay, So it's a, it's a big picture thing. I don't apologise for that because if we don't get this right. We won't get anything right. Uh, but these are important principles. I know it's late in the afternoon. You're all thinking about what you had for lunch and what you're having for tea, uh, all that sort of thing. But uh, work with me in this as we think through first principles as we wrestle with this issue of guidance. Okay, it's uh, point number one in the outline. What is God's plan for our lives. I've deliberately put it that way because often we approach life from a very egocentric perspective. We're constantly trying to work out things that suit us, our preferences, our desires, right? But we need to step back and think, what does God want for us? What is his 
purpose for us. We heard from that reading in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 following. If you can't, just turn to that with me. We'll flick through some of these right, fairly quickly, uh, but I think it'll be useful for us. Um, Ephesians is a great letter. Ephesians 1 is an amazing uh, passage of Scripture. All right? And in this opening chapter, um, verses 3 through 12 at least, are just one long sentence. Paul wasn't very good at grammar. Uh, he just is going on and on and on and on, giving praise to God. But if you observe um, in these verses, uh, it is an extraordinarily comprehensive picture of God's plan for all time. Okay, so um, what's the time frame? Well, verse 4, we're told it starts before the creation of the world, right? That's where God's plan begins. In verses 9 and 10, it talks about the fact that all things will be summed up in Christ at the end of the age, right? So from before the foundation of the earth till the end of the age, this is the plan of God that's being put forward to us here. And what is God's grand scheme? Well, it is to bless us in Christ, um, to richly reward us in relationship with the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, Election, verse 4, adoption, verse 7, redemption. And ultimately, if you go to the end of uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians, the plan is to make Christ a ruler of all. Right? This is God's plan. Right? God is, you think he must almost be male, right? He only has one thing in mind, right? That is to glorify his son at the end of the age and to enrich us by being brought under his authority and in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the plan of God. If you turn over to 2 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Just whip over there with me. 2 Thessalonians 2. Again, we get one of those um, you know, purple passages where God's big plan is being summarized for us. Verses 13 to 15 of 2 Thessalonians 2. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Uh, the letter's all about people, God's people pressing on, standing firm in the gospel. That's the focus of the letter. And here, again, the time frame, we are chosen from the beginning. And that is what God is doing, isn't he? That's his plan. He is choosing people. He's saving people in the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he do it? Well, through the gospel. To what purpose? Well, so that we will share in the glory of Jesus. It's the same idea when you go back to Romans. Chapter 8. Turn back to the air with me. Romans chapter 8. Um, Romans 8 uh, is a great chapter and verses 28 to 30 are verses that every Christian should have memorised, I reckon, uh, because they capture so much of the plan and purpose of God. Powerful words. Generally, Christians don't believe them, uh, but they are true. Look at them again. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Okay, what is God 
at work in? Right? Just give me a response. Right? God's at work in. And you're falling asleep. Give me. What does it say? Right? Simple comprehension. God's at work in. All things, yeah, that wasn't hard, was it? Uh, all things, right? He's at work in absolutely everything. He is sovereign, uh, the ruler. And what's he at work in all things for? Uh, good. What's our good? It's to be made more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, all things, do you believe it? So when disaster hits, uh, when illness strikes, when difficulties occur, when the global crisis crashes in around you and you lose your job, when you fail in your exams, when whatever is God at work for your good, even through those circumstances, yes or no? It's either yes, you believe these verses, or no, you don't, you see. And the answer is yes, he is at work. God is sovereignly at work in all things for our good and his glory. The reason I wanted to start at this point is because if you understand uh, this picture that is painted for us in the scripture, it totally revolutionises your thinking about the purpose of your own life. Copernicus was the man who uh, popularised the notion that instead of every planet in the universe, our universe revolving around the earth, right, the earth being the centre and everything else revolving around, uh, Copernicus put forward the notion that actually the sun was at the centre and all the other planets went around it. Okay? Totally revolutionised thinking about how our solar system operated. When you understand these sorts of verses, these sorts of pictures, this sort of, this sort of plan that is painted for us by God, you have a Copernican revolution in your own life. Because it isn't all about the world and God and everything else revolving around you. You at the centre... which is often what happens when we come to the issue of God's Lord help me know what I should do for my life it's incredibly self-focused isn't it when most of the guidance issues that are put forward to us in the scriptures have got nothing to do with you well in a secondary way they've got to do with you and they've all got to do with your focus being on God and you moving around him understanding what his purposes are for us and for his world from now till eternity It is the Copernican revolution. And when you have that focus, other decisions actually fall into place in rather a brilliant sort of way. So what is God's plan for your life? Well, it's actually to glorify him. What will you be at work in so that you'll glorify him? All things. How does that happen? So let me uh, put a scenario forward for you. You're at a stage where you're thinking, I'd like to buy an apartment, okay? somewhere in KL. And uh, what, would be, what would be good in terms of purchasing an apartment? What are the sort of factors you'd think about uh, from the point of view of making a good decision in terms of buying an apartment? Okay, just yell out a few ideas, okay? It would be if... Location, 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 okay? Uh, what's another one? Safety, yes, yeah, security, very important, Okay. Yeah, excellent swimming pool. And let's not forget the gym. Okay. What about your neighbours? Okay. All night party goers or uh, someone who is retired and sleeps most of the day. Retiree every time. Okay. It's, uh, do you know what I mean? Like you think through all those sorts of things. What's our good? What's good for us? It's become like the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? 
Well, that always happened when you have the, um, the cushy apartment in the right location with the swimming pool and the gym and the nice neighbours and safety and security. And I, In my experience, that's not how people grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I think I've grown most through difficult times, through hardship, uh, through suffering, through struggles. You see, the key is to to know that even through those things, God will be at work for your good. Now, do you believe it? Then, how does that affect you when it comes to the issues of decision-making and guidance? See, I would have thought it would be smart to buy an apartment where you got good capital increase, you know, uh, made a profit on your purchase. But, you know, your good might be God actually just ripping that out from under you so you become less reliant on finances and more dependent upon him. How do you factor that into your decision-making? It's a bit difficult to do, isn't it? But God is the one who rules for our good. That's the point, really, when it comes to the character of God that uh, I'm following up on there in point number two. You see? Um, Knowing who God is helps you enormously when it comes to this whole question of making decisions. God is sovereign. We've already discussed that a bit. I'll whip through this part a little bit faster. But just uh, write a few notes. We won't, um, we won't turn to every one of these verses. But when you, you talk about God being sovereign, what's, what's the content of that? You see, it means that you understand God is absolutely authoritative over everything that occurs in this world. Nothing escapes his hand, his plan, his purpose. Psalm 104 talks about uh, God having absolute control over creation. The one who authored it, maintains it, he superintends it. I remember one of our uh, lecturers, one of my lecturers at Moore College, a fellow called Broughton Knox, who was about 80 when I had him first year in Moore College, used to say, not even the littlest ant in deepest, darkest Africa takes one step without God knowing. I'd never really thought about that before then, uh, but there's something comforting in knowing that that is true. And it is true. God has absolute authority. Not only that, you turn to Matthew 10, verses 29 to 30. It talks about every hair on your head being numbered. Okay? Now, for some of us, that's easier for God than others of us. You know, but uh, but essentially, essentially, it's still an incredibly enormous capacity that God has. Ephesians 1, verse 11, that God is sovereign over salvation. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Let's turn to the Proverbs 3 verses. They're just, uh, they're often key in people's thinking about guidance. So let's go to those just briefly. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. I'd love to give you a page number, but I can't do it. But the other thing I meant to ask is, how many people are... I'm using an NIV right now, although I've got an ESV in my bag. How many of you are, are ESV lovers? ESV Bibles? Okay. How many of you are New International Version Bible users? Okay, probably a few more NIV. We'll stick with the NIV, sorry about that. Uh, unless more of you bring your ESVs in, which I'll convert, if that's the case. All right. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your paths straight. 
Often people read this as Christians and they say, if I trust God with all my heart, God will reveal to me a decision I should make in my life about a particular situation. The thing is, though, when you read through Proverbs 3, what you discover is that it's all actually about the sovereignty of God, not about him revealing to you your particular plan for every particular step of the way in which you should go. What happens is often Christians, what we've done is we've ripped these verses out of their context and said, I'll make them say whatever I want them to say for my particular situation. They're not to do with guidance on individual, individual situations. You read through this chapter, and I invite you to do that, you'll discover they're all about God's rule. So no matter, no matter which way you go, if you're trusting in God, he will overrule in terms of your circumstances. It's like the uh, Proverbs equivalent of Romans 8, actually. God is sovereign. He rules in all things. And Romans 8, I've already referred to. Okay, if you understand God is sovereign, it gives you enormous confidence as you live in his world. Sometimes I talk to Christians who seem so nervous and tentative about uh, their decision-making and what they're going to do and what will be the outcome of what they will do. And, you know, I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that they don't believe that God is sovereign. They don't understand that on a day-to-day sort of basis. Because often they're worried they'll make the wrong decision in a particular situation. Uh, But that's one of the handy things about having a sovereign God. He overrules absolutely every area of our lives. I'm not saying we therefore should be... um, unwise and foolish about the decision-making we, we go through or that we should be disobedient in any way. Yeah, I can disobey God and he'll overrule for my good. Uh, none at all. But often in situations where we're uncertain about decisions, uh, we don't have enough confidence in the sovereignty of God. If we did, we'd be far more relaxed. Joseph in, uh, in Genesis 50 is a great example. If you remember the story with Joseph... Uh, He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He goes to Egypt. He gets promoted up through the ranks. And then in due course, his brothers turn up. And uh, they are terrified about what their their brother, the one in power, is going to do to them because of uh, the fact that they sold him into slavery. But there's a telling moment. Uh, It comes up a couple of times. With Genesis 50, verse 20, uh, the brothers... After their father's death, they come to Joseph again. They say, don't, basically, don't kill us, is what they're saying. They're worried. And Joseph says about his being sold into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, isn't that a powerful statement about his confidence in the purpose and sovereignty of God? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Okay, we must be confident in the sovereignty of God. Let me press on. We also need to understand, not only is God all-powerful and uh, uh, rules over everything, but he also cares for us. He loves us. That's important, isn't it? If God were just uh, incredibly powerful but had the disposition of Adolf Hitler, you'd be a bit worried. Okay? But the point is, he isn't like that, right? He loves and cares for us. Psalm 23, verses 2 and 3. He's described as the good shepherd, gentle, caring and loving. Again, Isaiah 40, verse 11. I won't take you there, but it's, it's an image of God's care and his love for his people. In John 10, verse 27, Jesus is talking about himself in that context as the good shepherd, the one who has compassion 
and care. It's, it's not a sentimental uh, idea. You, I don't know, do you have any shepherding over here in Malaysia? Any sheep shepherding? Okay, no, you don't. In Australia, this is not a great picture because in Australia, uh, farmers who have sheep, sheep they, um, they, they abuse them, right? They send dogs out to yap around their ankles and, you know, they guide them. They think they're stupid, you know. And so this doesn't conjure up great image for Australians when it comes to uh, God caring for us. You know, you've got this picture of God yapping around our ankles and beating us about the head and talk, talking to us like we're stupid, you know. Okay, so, but the context, John 10 and the, uh, the first century context in which Jesus speaks is about a, a shepherd who cares for his sheep. He lays down. It's not sentimentalism because it's robust love, uh, but Jesus is describing himself in that sort of way. So, friends, we can be confident. God rules this world and he loves his children. It, it's a powerful com- combination that should breed amazing confidence in our lives. Trinity, as I said before, is uh, uh, the first church in Adelaide. Under our trustee, the senior pastor gets appointed by the governor of the state. And what happens is the trustees under this deed uh, ask the rector if he'd like to do the job and uh, then they go and see the governor and the governor signs a sheet of paper to say the governor approves of the, the senior pastor's appointment. And uh, so I remember doing that when I was appointed. We went up to Government House, very palatial mansion right in the middle of Adelaide and had high tea with the Governor. On another occasion, Sue and I were invited to go to uh, Government House for a dinner. There were about 20 of us, I suppose, gathered around their dining table. It was the most um, high-powered and formal occasion I've ever been to. Right? So black dinner suits, bow ties... Uh, there was one waiter for every, basically every person around the table, right, as we sat down. And I don't know if you've ever been into that sort of situation. I, was, I just wasn't sure what the protocol was, you know. So I, I, I'm just terrified, right, terrified that I'll make a mistake. You know, you start with the cutler in the outside and move in, or is it move in and go out, you know. Uh, what if I spray my peas all over the table, you know. What if I knock over my glass? What if I, you know, I thought there are so many things I could do that would make me look like an absolute dill, right, in this sort of context. And um, it, it wasn't the most relaxed occasion I can ever remember in my life, and uh, we escaped afterwards uh, uh, home. Now, compare that with what happened in my house just a few weeks ago. I'm sitting in sort of the back room of my home, and David, who's our son, he's 18, has a sort of a, a group of mates, and they just sort of roam around from house to house, you know, and uh, invading whichever house they should come across, stripping it bare of food, that sort of thing, and moving on to the next harvest, you know. That's, they're 18, that's the way they work. Okay, so I, I'm at home, and uh, one of David's friends, Wills, uh, William, he comes in through the back door into the lounge room. By himself. Wills doesn't knock. He feels very comfortable just to barge into our home uninvited. So, uh, and uh, I'm sitting down, I was just watching a bit of TV, and William said, Where's David? And I said, "Uh, Hi, Wills. Uh, I don't know, possibly in his bedroom. He said, Okay, I'll go and find him. He just went off investigating, really, throughout the house. But as he left this, this sort of back room area, he passed through the kitchen and passed the pantry cupboard. He stopped at the pantry cupboard. 
opened the door, looked in, closed the door and said, uh, Paul, you're out of muesli bars. And kept going. I thought this man feels very relaxed in my house. Perhaps a little more relaxed than I'd like him to feel. Um, let me ask you this, though. Government house, high tea, uh, William Cow, sort of just wandering through. If you had to use one of those to describe your relationship with the, the living God, which one would it be? Full of confidence and security. and I actually do want David and his mates to feel that way. Or do you feel just sort of nervous and worried? When it comes to this question of guidance, well, I blow it all the time. I'm just fearful and concerned. Which one? When you know the, the sovereignty and the love of God, let me say it's William Cow every time. William is the one who captures the relationship we have with God. Security, confidence, able to enter into the throne room of God. Which one would it be for you? So you understand these truths about God and who he is, what he's done for you in Christ. That is a platform for great security when it comes to decision making and where you hit. Okay? Let me press on. I know time's, uh, time's running. So how does God guide? Because at this point you might go, yes, 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 yes. We know all this stuff about God and his plan, his purposes, his glory, his character. Yes, 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 yes. Now, tell me how to do it. Okay, well, let's, let's cut to the chase and uh, give me the practicalities. And it's not easy. When Sue and I were going, trying to work out, do we stay doing law or do we go off to a theological college and go on a full-time ministry? Which one should we do? We took a trip, right? And we took a trip from Adelaide to Sydney. Now, that is about a 1,000 miles and most of it's just desert, right? We went in summer and we got to Mildura, which is about a third of the way, and we camped out in a tent. Middle of summer, it was 40 degrees Celsius outside. Right? It was boiling, and we were tenting. We went to bed in our tent, and uh, we'd been talking non-stop. Do we go to college? Don't we go to college? We'd written the list, list, yes, list, no. You know, we'd done everything, really. We'd prayed about it, and we just didn't feel really settled. So we're lying in bed. This night, and there was a light outside shining through the tent. And we put a, um, um, a towel on top of the tent while we were sleeping. And I saw the towel there. I didn't say anything to Sue, right? but in my mind I said, Okay, God, if you want us to go to college, what I want you to do is to make that towel sopping wet in the morning and everything else dry. Okay? Um, do a bit of a Gideon, if you're familiar with that story in the Old Testament. Now, remember I said it was 40 degrees Celsius outside. Right? I thought it was a pretty good test of God's sovereign, you know, uh, supernatural ability to intervene if he really wanted us to go. And then I rolled over. Two minutes later, Sue got up out of bed, went outside the tent, pulled the towel off the top of the tent, right? went over to the tap, turned on the tap, drenched the towel underneath the tap and started sponging yourself off with this towel, you know. I said, what does that mean, you know? (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, possibly. I'm the only, only stupid person here, and, and there is a possibility of that. But I expect that most of you have had that sort of experience of, how do you work it out? Is it all to do with the way you feel? Is it to do with a sense of peace about something? Do you look for signs, you know, wet towels, dry tents, uh, open doors, closed doors, advice, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, whatever that looks like, uh, prophecy. Um, you know, what? how do you work out what you should do? See? What is the way in which you work it out? How does God guide? And one of the problems I think is that we, we get ourselves caught up in, a, in thinking that God has only got one sort of plan for our life. See, we were talking about this last night, Andrew and Judy and I, and, uh, and I was saying, you know, it was God's plan for you to come back to Adelaide and you didn't come, you know. And, uh, and Judy said, yes, we're on to plan B, you know. And uh, I said, no, I think it's probably plan Z triple plus by now, you know. Sort of mucked it up here. Who knows how many other mistakes you've made along the way, you know. Now, obviously, we're only joking about that, but, but Christians actually don't joke about that. They feel serious about it. They feel tied in knots. You see, what if, if I get it wrong here, am I going to plan B for, for my life from God's plan C? Because generally we sin regularly, you know. So plan, you know, 5B and 452, you know, like where does it stop in terms of that? Keep remembering God is sovereign, right? And he will overrule even in terms of your sinfulness. You will not escape uh, the plan of God. I think Sarah and Abraham and Isaac are great examples of that if you read through Genesis. And uh, yeah, it, it's just terrific to see the way in which God promises to Abraham certain things. And Abraham is an absolute dope at all sorts of different points where he disobeys God. You know, they go into Egypt and he says to Sarah, just pretend you're my sister, you know. And he's, you know, he, he is sinful, Sinful, sinful. And yet God keeps overruling to fulfill his plans and his purposes to Abraham. Not because of Abraham's faithfulness, but because of God's, you see. Right? God rules. And here's the thing. God uses everything to guide us. There's nothing. If God's sovereign, he's at work in absolutely everything, and nothing is outside his authority. That's even without our knowledge. Even when we don't know how he's doing it, God is still at work. God can use anything to guide us. He uses everything. He can use anything. So Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse 4, that's when uh, God speaks to Moses in the burning bush. See, God actually addresses him directly, verbally, out of a bush in terms of his plans and his purposes for him. Daniel 5, if you went there, you'd see that God communicates by writing on a wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Okay, that's the way God communicates there. Acts 1, verses 25 and 26, they cast lots to determine the next, uh, the next apostle. Right? Matthias is selected. Acts 16, uh, Paul is guided by a vision of a man from Macedonia to come over and do evangelism. God can use any means he chooses. But let me talk to you just for a moment about the what I call the descriptive, prescriptive problem. Just because God has guided people in the past through various means doesn't mean he will guide us that way in the present time. In much the same way, you know, you read through the Gospels and you see that Jesus 
went up to Jerusalem on a donkey, okay? Which is the reason why you all should have come to Kampar today on donkeys instead of driving in cars, right? Because Jesus did it. It was good enough for Jesus. It should be good enough for you, all right? So now you don't think that's great logic, do you? Nor when you read the way in which God leads um, other Christians in the past, when you read his scriptures, should you necessarily expect that to be replicated in your life? Um, I'm not saying God can't. He obviously has and he does. But it's not necessarily a matter of expectation for us. And yet often I talk to Christians who, when they're faced with significant decisions, ones that they feel are very serious, they feel like they need something like that to know what they should be doing. But they're selective. Okay? I, there are very few Christians I know who, when faced with a serious decision, say to me, yep, yeah, I was not sure what I should do, so I built a fire and asked God to speak to me through it. Right? Yeah, I haven't met any Christians who do that. You know, I, I, I painted a big wall just outside my house white so God could write on it. You know? Yeah, we don't, we're very selective in the way in which we expect God to God, aren't we? Uh, normally it's to do with much more internalised sense of you know, feeling or perspective on how we go about making the decision. Uh, you often hear people talking about um, God speaking to them about decisions. And yet, when, generally when I talk to them, they're not saying God spoke to them. Normally they're saying they had a feeling about what God wanted them to do. I'm not saying God can't speak to people. Right? He obviously has, throughout the scriptures, verbally addressed his people. Moses is an example of that in the burning bush. All I'm saying is, though, that that is not the, uh, the promise of God for every believer and we tend to be a bit selective. That's the prescriptive, descriptive problem. What I want to say, though, is that God has revealed his will to us, right? and that is in the scriptures. The sufficiency of scripture is really what I want to nail to the mast right at the start of this weekend and say, here is the key doctrine to understand so you can work out how you should make decisions. I wonder if you turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Just in case you're wondering, we're on the home run, so hang in there. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Context of this letter, uh, many of you will know it. Um, Paul is in a Roman prison awaiting execution. He's passing on the baton to his son and the Lord, basically. He's saying, uh, I've run the race, I'm about to die, and I pass uh, the task of maintaining the faith onto you, right? Stick with it. Be a gospel man. Be faithful. We come to 2, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and Paul, in a, a much bigger argument, but we'll focus on these verses for the moment, he says, All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What I want you to particularly pick up here is the way in which these verses affirm the sufficiency of the scripture. All you need for godliness, uh, for every good work. Uh, It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. Now notice here, uh, we're not told the scriptures are useful for 90% of what you need to know as a Christian person. 
and there's 10% that's just sort of thrown up in the air and left up to you to work out. What we're told here is that the scriptures are useful for all you need to know for godliness and good living. You won't get to heaven, right? And I'll, you know, Paul Harrington fronts up to God in heaven and God then says to me, sorry Paul, didn't you know that only those who read the ESV version of the Bible get into heaven? Yeah, okay. There won't be any, there won't be any secret bits of information uh, to be disclosed on that day to do with salvation and how you please God. It is the doctrine of the sufficiency of the scripture. If you look at Romans 2 verse 18, it tells us we'll know the will of God through instruction from the law, scriptures. 2 Peter 1 verses 19 to 21 that I've referred to there, it talks about the nature of Scripture being men spoke from God. Right? That is, God authors his word. It's authoritative. It's useful for all those purposes. The Scripture is sufficient for us to honour God with our lives. That's what God does promise. The other thing is God doesn't promise to guide us apart from the Bible. There is no promise in the scriptures that God will guide us apart from his word. Now listen to me very carefully at this point. I am not saying God can't guide you apart from the scriptures. Don't get me wrong. You've only got to read the scriptures to know that that is eminently possible. God at any point can write on a wall. He can speak to you out of a burning bush. God can communicate to you, but he doesn't promise and that's what he will do. And he has affirmed that we can study the scriptures to work out issues concerning guidance. Okay? Scripture is sufficient. We're going to come back to that again and again to test it over this weekend to work out if it's true. And I want you to wrestle with it as well uh, with me. And I'd love you to be asking me questions about it uh, as we start to sort of work this through together. Let me try and summarise. What about when the Bible is silent? You see, the the difficulty with the scriptures are sufficient is it doesn't seem to have the answers to some of the questions that are passionate, that I'm passionate about. Okay, who do I marry? Where should I study? Where should I live? What church should I go to? Should I uh, become a missionary or stay in my career that I'm currently doing? Or what job should I do? Or... What should I purchase? Should I buy a unit, uh, an apartment or a new car or, you know, the scriptures just don't seem to guide us on those sort of matters, do they? Not explicitly, they seem to be silent. Friends, can I suggest that the scriptures guide us on everything of importance? And what we need to do is to have that Copernican revolution that I spoke of at the forefront of our thinking. The issues that we are passionate about knowing explicit answers to invariably reflect our view on the world. Our view on the world being us-centred. Because most of the issues that I've spoken to Christians about over the years that they've been passionately concerned and worried about have often come back to them and the fears and worries, their desires for happiness. But actually... That isn't the purpose of the Christian life. God is not a sort of celestial, you know, waiter 
waiting for you to, you know, click your fingers so he can come running and answer your questions. He's the Lord of the universe, and our lives revolve around him, not his around us. See, we need to have that perspective that we live for the glory of God. Just want to make a couple of other observations before I wrap up. Uh, one you'll see there in the outline, dots and boxes. And when it comes to this perspective sort of issue, I think that what Christians do often is um, drive the question of the will of God to a conclusion the Bible never takes it. Now, let me give you an illustration. Uh, this morning I came out, and literally when I came out of the chair's place, there were four lots of cereals lined up on the bench. Okay, And, um, you know... Uh, which one should I eat? Right, which one is God's will for me to eat? Right. Now you say to me, stop being stupid, Paul, you know, and uh, I am being stupid, I guess. But where do you draw that line? Um, you know, let's say you have three jobs uh, that you've been offered. Uh, now maybe that's a bit ambitious in times of global hardship. Say you face the three jobs and they all pay reasonably and they're fairly equivalent. Which, God, which job does God want you to do? Well, friends, it's a bit like cereal, isn't it? Who cares? It doesn't really matter. Now, I know actually your job's more significant than your breakfast cereal to you, but from God's perspective, God's plans for eternity, which car should you buy? You know, the Honda, the, uh, the I don't know what brands of cars you've got over here, the Camry or the... yeah. Doesn't matter. Who cares? Are these the big issues of life? Dots and boxes. It seems to me that on a lot of these decisions, um, we say to God, God, which one of these should I do? And God is going, Oh, for goodness sake, just get on with it. You know? It doesn't matter. Okay? Now, I don't mean he's not, I don't mean to be flippant and say he's not interested in the lives of his creatures, his children. What I'm saying is sometimes the issues that we're so passionately concerned about, God is not. You say, oh, quite honestly, I'm quite happy to buy you know, the Honda or you know, the Toyota. It's not a big deal. Do whichever one you want. You know, have wheat picks or do you have wheat picks over here? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know, choose this cereal, that cereal. It doesn't matter. Tea, coffee, I'm not worried. Right? That is, many of the decisions fall into that sort of category. Uh, that's what I mean by dots and boxes. Godliness is the, um, the priority. Um, we need to have a concern about how we glorify God and how we grow more like his son. And it isn't always the right, wrong decisions. Uh, we often think every decision is the right, wrong, wrong one, but often they are serial decisions. Sometimes there are wise and unwise decisions. And when you look at Proverbs, that wisdom can extend to the issue of uh, sin. There's no question about that. Sometimes they're right wrong. Um, should you marry a non-Christian? Uh, should you get drunk? Should you cheat in your taxes? No, 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 no. Right? It's all very clear, isn't it? Okay, right wrong. Wise, unwise. You know, maybe that's the Toyota Honda sort of decision. Uh, maybe it's the marriage decision. You know, wise, unwise. And then there are so many, I think, where it falls into the who cares sort of category. We've got to say, look, I've revealed my will to you. And I've told you everything that's important. And if the question you're asking is not one that I address in my scriptures, then quite likely it's not that important to me. And nor should it be that important to you. Okay? I want to get us to think through who we are as God's people. 
and how we go about these sort of issues. For it seems to me that we are called into a relationship with God and sometimes when I look at Christians, they get themselves tied in horrible knots and uptight and concerned and, and uh, into legalism really about how they should go about this issue. But the life of the redeemed child of God is about perfect freedom in relationship with God. There aren't secrets. God's revealed it to you. And he wants you to uh, study his word and to call upon him the sovereign and holy one and seek to live for his glory and honour. Right? That's our calling. What I'm going to do is wrestle through these principles in uh, the coming sessions. And I'll, I'll road test them on a few practical issues. The principles are important. So when you go away into small groups, if that's what you're planning to do now, then uh, it'll be really helpful to wrestle them around uh, because I really am going to come back to these again and again over the next few sessions. Can I just pray for us now? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, it is a light under our feet. It's a, it's a, you're the one who guides our path. Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign one who rules uh, for your glory and honour and for the good of his children. Father, we thank you that you love and care for us. Uh, we can never doubt that when we observe your son who went to the cross for our redemption. And Father, our desire is that as we wrestle with your word, as we think through these issues, we won't become people who uh, live arrogantly and independently of you, but rather independence upon you, uh, loving to serve you and honour you, and enjoying the relationship we have with you, and having clarity and growing our wisdom and maturity as we think about your purpose for our lives. So Father, we ask that you'll uh, be overruling and guiding us as we read your word and uh, that your spirit will be convicting us about the truth of the scriptures. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thank you, Paul.